professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Kelly Beattie, senior editor from Sky and Telescope magazine, speaking to us from Chelmsford, Massachusetts. We are recording on November 2nd, and I am going to try a kabucha squash latte from a place called Tate. You've probably seen these Tates popping up all over Massachusetts, Kelly, but I think it's like a bougie pumpkin latte, but it looks weird and smells a little weird, so I'm a little doubtful. What are you going to try? <laughs> well, my favorite drink of choice is something called a Pisco Sour, ah, nice. which is it's the national drink of Peru, and it's made with Pisco, which is a distilled grape liqueur, a little like grape bourbon. And you add to that lime juice, sugar, Angostura bitters, and egg white, importantly, egg white. In fact, there's the first Saturday in February is a national holiday in Peru. It's National Pisco Sour Day. That sounds amazing. Well, cheers. How is your Pisco Sour? It is earthy and sweet and sour all at the same time, as any good sour should be. My squash latte is actually quite good, and it actually has like a taste of squash, which is kind of exciting. I'm actually a fan. The last time I had tried a pumpkin spice latte, it was on the show First Space Pod like five years ago, and it was a negative experience for me. So I'm glad I tried it again. So today we're going to talk about dark skies, why they matter and what we can do to keep them. And to start us off, can you explain what the term light pollution means? Sure. Light pollution is something that we've had to deal with for like the last century and change. It's artificial light inserted into the nighttime environment. Now, obviously we have moonlight, we have starlight. Those are natural sources of light at night, but our ecology, our nocturnal ecology has evolved over these millions of years to have pretty dark, dark. This includes humans as well. Think about it. Our ancestors long ago exposed themselves to 12 hours of pretty bright, full spectrum sunlight during the day. And then at night, it was dark. And that those extremes created what we call our circadian rhythm. And we have messed around with that of late. If you think about it, we spend our days inside in sort of a medium gray interior, rarely exposing ourselves to bright sunlight. And then at night, we extend the day into the wee hours, right? Either with our 24-7 society or reading our devices or watching late night TV or making a run to the refrigerator or the bathroom. All of that has messed with our circadian rhythm in ways that we don't fully appreciate yet. It's you know, the evolutionary aspect of that hasn't really been fully sussed, but we do know that people who are routinely exposed to strong light at night, shift workers, emergency room nurses, and so forth, are preferentially, they're, they're increased risk for cancer, breast cancer in women, prostate cancer in men is, is documented. And so we know that light at night is bad for humans, it's bad for insects, it's bad for migrating birds, and it's bad for astronomers. Can you talk a little bit more about why is it bad for astronomers and anybody who likes the night sky? Sure. The real culprit here, I mean, all light at night is bad, but the real culprit is blue light. Blue light is what makes our sky blue. It's scattered very readily in our atmosphere, and it's scattered very readily at night. I live in Chelmsford, which is about 20, 25 miles from downtown Boston. And when I look straight up overhead, I am seeing light pollution that is created in Boston 
by light fixtures that are sending their light out through the atmosphere at an oblique angle, almost horizontal. And when that goes over my head, it scatters and it creates a glow in the sky that hides the stars, makes my sky not pristine. I can't see as many stars as if I'm in a truly dark spot. And, you know, I'm in a pretty good spot. Astronomers use what's called magnitude to gauge how bright a star is. And I can see stars down to like fifth magnitude, which is pretty dark. In downtown Boston, that might be first or second magnitude. Only the very brightest stars would show up. I lived in Los Angeles and I'd drive out to the desert and you would you know, have some beautiful dark skies in the desert, but you could find where Los Angeles was because it was like a false dawn. It was as if the sun was coming up all the time where the city was because there was right. so much of the scattered light. You mentioned that this affects insects and birds and other animals. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So a great majority of species do their thing at night. They're, they're nocturnal creatures. They migrate, they mate, they eat, and light at night disrupts that. We know, for example, that bird migration is messed up because birds, as they fly north or south, you know, during their migrations, travel, most of them at a fairly low altitude, and they can be seriously misled by a brightly lit skyscraper. And rather than continuing their, on their way, they'll circle around it. And then by morning, they've, they've exhausted themselves. They've either collided with the building or they fall out of the sky exhausted or dead tens of millions of birds every year just along the east coast which is a major migratory flyway insects are very much attracted to light sources at night and you know those of us of a certain age used to have what's called a bug light a yellow light that we did install on our porches that dissuaded bugs from coming because there was no blue light component to it now with modern leds bugs are the bugs are back but bugs are disrupted a lot by this light at night. And there's something called the insect apocalypse. I'm not making this up. Something like 75%, if I have the number right, of all insects have disappeared over the last 50 years. And one of those reasons, I mean, there's lots of reasons. There's you know pesticides and all of that. But one of the reasons is the preponderance, the ubiquity of light at night. It disrupts their cycle. If you, if you put out a bright, street light or something like that, you can see the insects hovering around it. And that keeps them, especially like at night, we don't realize this, but there are pollinators that work at night, moths especially, and they're completely disrupted by bright lights. They just won't come out. I know here in Massachusetts, there's native fireflies and they are just incredible, but they're really affected by, by light at night. And one of the things that we're working to do here on campus is not only make more habitat and, you know, reduce our pesticide usage, but also turn down the lights so that they can have a chance because they're so amazing to see, you know, these flashes of lights and they're really disappearing pretty fast. And in fact, there's a team at Tufts University. Avalon Owens is one of the principal researchers who's looking into just exactly this. You wouldn't realize it, but there are different kinds of fireflies and their, their blinking patterns tell their prospective mates, who they are. <laughs> and so light obviously gets in the way of that. It dissuades them from coming out. And it turns out that when you most want to see those fireflies in the couple of hours after sunset is exactly when we are most likely ourselves residentially to have our porch lights on and, and so forth. So it's really a bad combination. 
And yes, there is a firefly problem. And that is just sort of the canary in the coal mine, if you will, of how our nocturnal environment is being disrupted by light pollution. The concept of light pollution is a little interesting because people also don't realize what they're missing if they've never really been in a truly dark environment. There was a large blackout in New York City in 1977, and I've heard from scientists who were kids then that that blackout made them see the night sky for the first time, and they were just shocked. It was so weird and strange and beautiful that it made them into scientists. And it's interesting that it took a blackout to make people see the sky, and then it was transformative. It changed their lives. But if if people have never seen a really dark sky, they don't they don't know what they're missing. They just think that everything's the way it always has been. Yeah, I taught astronomy at a private school in Brookline for six years, and I would ask my students this very question. Have you ever seen a pristinely dark sky? Now, these students were from pretty well-to-do families, so many of them had an opportunity to go on a vacation to a remote mountain retreat or to the Caribbean or someplace like that, and, and they had, but many had not. And more generally in our population, we have now more than an entire generation of people stuck in this pool of light at night and they have not seen the milky way and really have no good opportunity especially economically disadvantaged populations to get out and do so and it's really sad you mentioned the blackout in new york there was a famous one throughout the northeast in the 1980s that boston wasn't affected but but a lot of southern southern canada michigan detroit was and it was the same situation. People suddenly realized how amazing the night sky was. It happened in August when the Milky Way was prominent. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad. One of the interesting consequences of the pandemic has been that a lot of people were stuck at home, often with their kids, with nothing to do. And one of the places they turned was to their backyard and looking up in the evening sky. And for better or worse, they saw fewer or more stars, depending on where they live, telescope sales during the pandemic went through the roof. And it was a perfect storm because of the supply chain issues, most telescopes now being made in China, dealers ran out. And so I like to think that there's an entire new generation of amateur astronomers who've been energized by the pandemic of all things, who will be carrying this story forward and asking questions about, well, where the heck did our stars go? You know, there's a lot of problems in the world, and I think sometimes people can get overwhelmed by them. But the thing I like about light pollution is that we all have lights, so there's something that everybody can do. Can you talk about the smallest things people can do to make this just a little bit better for themselves and the planet? You know, there's a um, a recent rapprochement between the International Dark Sky Association, which I'm a longtime member of, and here in Massachusetts, I'm on the officers of our chapter, and the lighting industry, the professionals who install lights and make the regulations regarding lights, what are called five principles. You can look it up, five principles of good lighting. And they're pretty common sense things, which is, first of all, don't use a light if you don't need it. If you're going to use a light, make sure that it's pointed in a way that is down, not up. Make sure it's not too strong make sure that it is what we call a warm color temperature, a warm hue. Color temperature is a, is a number that is used as a proxy for the hue of the light. Is it blue or is it warm yellow? And the higher the number, it's measured in Kelvins, 
the higher the number, the bluer the light. And this sounds like a techie thing, but if you go buy a light bulb anywhere now on the side of the box is not only how bright it is in lumens and how many watts it uses in its lifetime, but its color temperature. That's a fairly new wrinkle. So there's no excuse for not using warm color temperature lights. All of those things. A lot of people have, for example, security lights on the outsides of their houses. It is silly and wasteful to have them on all night because unless you're in the business of like staring out your bedroom window all night long, watching for something bad to happen, all you're doing is showing the, the boogeyman what's in your yard. And so a much better solution there in particular is to have a motion sensor that comes on when something's in the, and this includes you, if you go out in the backyard to feed the dog or whatever it might be. And then that light shuts off and you don't have to worry about it further. There, there really are a lot of simple steps that we individually can take to improve our local environment. If I had my way at Olin College here, I would just have all the lights off at night because it would help the fireflies and everyone could see the night sky. But if I were to suggest that, I'm sure people would say, have concerns. They would say, well, what about the safety of the students in terms of crime? And what about, you know, like liability, like somebody trips on a sidewalk? What would you say to those people? So you notice I have not said don't have any lights. I mean, let's be pragmatic. We have a 24-7 society. We do need safety and security as we're walking around at night. But one of the big problems with a lot of the lighting that we have, and I suspect it's there on the Olin campus as well, is that the lights that are installed create a lot of glare. And the easiest way to describe glare is you're driving along and then somebody is coming at you in another car with the high beams on. And you barely can make out the road because those lights are blindingly bright to you. The same happens in our everyday nighttime environment. We're walking along and suddenly we have a light ostensibly helping to light our way, but it's, it's really bright in our eyes. It causes our pupils to contract. We see less well. And we don't see what's there in the shadows. We, we need to have these outdoor lights, and they're necessary, shining down so that we're not seeing the bulbs, we're not seeing the light fixture themselves, and they're, they're only illuminating the task area. That's one. And the second thing is, we don't need lights that are nearly as bright as you might think. Our eyes are pretty well adapted to seeing in low light situations at night. We have these things called rods in our eyes, which are tens, uh, hundreds of times more sensitive than the cones that we use during the day. And so we've all had the experience of walking around under a full moon and we can see pretty well. So the amount of light that we need is less than you might think. And those would be my two you know, guidelines for people is to make sure that the light is pointed down and not creating glare and to not use too much of it. People often feel safer when it's they're in a well-lit area. Do you know of any data that shows that they actually are safer? You know, this is a perennial problem because there's perception and there's reality. No doubt people feel safer in a well-lit environment, but are they actually safer? The data are kind of inconclusive, but they are skewing toward, no, you're not safer. There was one really well-known example. Chicago is famous for overlighting everything. And they had these alleyways behind houses in between blocks that weren't lit. And there was a lot of problem with crime. And so they decided they were going to light up the alleyways too. And they said, well, let's, let's prove that we'll reduce crime. So they did a, a scientific study. They 
measured the crime rate before the lights went in and after the lights went in. And guess what? Crime went up, not down. And so anecdotal stuff like this, we, we know of schools, for example, that had problems with vandalism. And then when they turned off all the lights so that the vandals couldn't see the walls to tag them, the vandalism went down. And I would just tell people that, you know, a lot of crime happens in well-lit areas. And so there really is not the cause and effect that you might think more light makes you safer, less light makes you unsafe. Are there any major misconceptions around light pollution that you'd like to address? One of the things that we here in Massachusetts have been pushing a lot is trying to get a statewide bill that would provide some common sense restrictions on outdoor lighting for state and municipally funded projects. Say you have a school that's being renovated or a town that's putting in new streetlights. Here are some things that we would like you to do to make those fixtures more night sky friendly, creating less light pollution. And there's a perception, I think, a misconception that this makes it more expensive to do that. And the reality is just the opposite. It's like going to the store for a can of paint. All the paint is priced the same, but you know that, you know, blue paint is what your cat likes. So whatever it might be, it doesn't cost you any more. The town of Pepperell, about two years ago, as many towns have done, replaced all of its existing old antiquated streetlights with new LED streetlights. And they did a couple of things that were really smart. First, they set up some test fixtures so that the citizens could see what was going to be installed. And the second is they they went through a range of these color temperatures all the way down to what you might call was a kind of pale orange light, much like what we have now. The, the light source called high pressure sodium gives off a peachy colored light that's pretty ubiquitous. You'll know it when you see it. The townspeople not only preferred that color light, the lowest color temperature, which was the least egregious in terms of the nighttime environment, but that also turned out to be the least expensive fixture. And so we have here an environmental pollution, light pollution, that can be eradicated in a win-win situation. It's reversible, easily reversible, and you save money by getting rid of it. I've been watching with a lot of interest news reports coming out of Europe where Europe is, you know, facing a lack of energy right now. And so people are you know, unscrewing light bulbs and they're turning light bulbs off everywhere. But if you yourself would like to save money, you can also combat light pollution by just turning some lights off that you're not actually using. Right. You know, it's an interesting history of lighting our streets in particular that goes back you know, to the late 1800s was when the first electric lights were put in. But during the 1950s and 60s in particular, the big national power generating companies like General Electric and Westinghouse had these power plants that were running 24-7. During the daytime, there was plenty of load. Lots of people were doing business and machines were running and so forth. But at night, there, there weren't as many things on. And so they needed a way to use the electricity that they were generating. And so those utilities helped roll out streetlights to small town America by the tens of wow. millions and that's a legacy we live with today. That didn't exist. And, you know, I'm of an age that I can remember when my little hometown in California was pretty darn dark all the time. Nothing was open late at night. That's the other thing. We've become, I've said this before, this 24-7 society 
where you can go out at night and find gasoline or you know bandages or food or whatever you want and you have all of these businesses that are open or illuminated even when they're closed think of a big box store of your choosing the store is closed but all the lights in the parking lot are still on why <laughs> i just don't understand that Yo, what are you doing trying to protect the asphalt <laughs> you know that the cars park on if somebody wants to kind of see what you're talking about in terms of like really seeing a dark night sky, how can they find a place near them? And what do you suggest they do once they're out there? You know, light pollution, like politics, is mostly local. And so I would encourage people, for example, we have a total lunar eclipse coming up in a few days. We have the winter stars are just beautiful. Some of the brightest stars in the sky are actually out during the winter. And so I would encourage people if they want to get just a quick fix of dark sky is to find a local park, a baseball field, a soccer field, a local state park, and go there at night and get away from the immediate streetlights. Your eyes undergo a transformation in darkness. First, your pupils dilate to allow more light in, but also chemically in your eye, the retina secretes something called rhodopsin or visual purple, which kind of puts your retina on steroids and enhances your sensitivity. And so if you just get yourself in a dark location for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, you will see more stars. You will see more stuff. If you want to get out away from the city, obviously, as you did when you were in Los Angeles, you have to go far away from what are called these light domes. In most cases, even being 10 or 15 miles away, from a bright city center can make a really remarkable difference in what you can see at night. Is there a question I should have asked? You know, people like me are volunteers. The foot soldiers in the fight against light pollution are all across the nation, all across the world, in fact. And the leader is the International Dark Sky Association. The website is darksky.org. And in just a week or so, we're going to have our global conference. And thanks to the miracle of Zoom, we're able to attract a thousand people worldwide to this conference. And not just a thousand people, people from you know underdeveloped countries where there aren't a lot of lights already. We hear their stories, their stories of accomplishment in trying to combat light pollution at every level. So for more information on any aspect of light pollution, I encourage people to go to darksky.org. And that should be your important first step. It's a great website. They also have maps of dark sky areas. So you can find one that might be near you or not. <laughs> and a lot of really great resources. So thank you so much for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about dark skies, we get to hear a fun fact about Kelly. Yeah, my fun fact is that if it weren't for Ronald Reagan, I might have been a professional musician. <laughs> and this what goes did, back. Yeah, what did Ronald Reagan do to you? This goes back to my high school days. I was in a band. Uh, an adult band, not a rock band. And we were really very popular in Central California. We were booked every weekend for six months out. Wow. Weddings, weddings and so forth. And we played in a lot of bars. And so I was 18 and I was about to go off to college. I went to Caltech and literally the first few weeks I was at Caltech, I was flying home every weekend to play in this band. And Reagan was the governor of California. The legislature had passed a law that would allow 18 to 21 year olds to work, not drink, but to work in liquor establishments. And Reagan vetoed it. And because I was in the, the musicians union at that time, 
<laughs> I was I was quietly asked to leave the band. And so I went on to finish up at Caltech and join the staff of Sky and Telescope. And I always have this what if wonder of, <laughs> you know, would I be would I be pounding the drums in the studio in Los Angeles and had made my fame that way? Probably not. But it's an interesting way to think about my life. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, I'm really glad that Reagan vetoed that because you've done a lot of contributions to astronomy right on my desk. I actually have a, a book that you're the editor of, The New Solar System, which is one of my real favorites. So yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. And thanks for all the great science communication you do. It's been a pleasure, Carrie. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.